deeper down the rabbit hole. Saturday, 6 p.m., live in Toronto, Ontario, at the Queen City Curio Occult and Spiritual Store. Welcome. welcome. It is welcome. the Deep Down the Rabbit Hole podcast and the Queen City Curio videocast. In case you're wondering, we broadcast live, although I'm not live from the center today. I usually am, but Zach's there. Queen yeah. City Curio, 607 Gerard Street East in East Chinatown, Toronto. That we are. That we are. What do we have? So why on? do we do live? Why do we do a live show, Zach, instead of a prepackaged podcast? Easy. We get to hear the goods. That's right. The goods come out. I think just last week I got compared to Barbara Walters. I that felt you pretty did. proud of myself. That you did. But that's okay. So we do have a couple of coming things. If you're a sponsor, just real fast. Tomorrow at 6, we're going to do creating hypnosis, self-hypnosis for self-trauma and how to kind of overcome traumas through self-hypnosis, which we'll do at 6 o'clock tomorrow. And next weekend, if you're interested, we're going to do a full Archangel Haniel ritual to kind of heal trauma. Theme here? That we do. That we do. That's always going to be fun. Archangel Haniel work. Always, always a heart reviver. Or a heart, like, rip it out, reconstruct it, come back to the table, and then see what happens. So, So, who is joining us today? So today we have Carl Abrahamson. He's a writer, publisher, magical anthropologist, and filmmaker. The author of A Culture, Residences, and Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, as well as the editor and publisher of the irregular anthology, A Culture, the Penrith Rolls. He lives in, I have no clue how to pronounce that, Smallland, Sweden. Is that correct? Smallland. There we go. <laughs> I'm glad you had to do that because I didn't have to say I didn't know how to pronounce it, Zach. Fine with it. I'm fine with it. So today we have Carl coming on. We're going to be talking about source magic, the origin and art and science of culture. And so what got you started writing the, this book, Carl? Well, it, it's basically I have this thing going on is that I continually write about things, topics that fascinate me. And I do lectures at schools and universities and online. And uh, it's just this thing where I call myself a magical anthropologist, meaning I look at how magic affects and is integrated in our culture and also historically. And Source Magic is an anthology of uh, lectures and essays, presentations from the past year or so about a wide range of topics, but there is a red thread there. And the red thread is under the umbrella of magical anthropology, meaning it all has to do with magic in one form or another and how it relates to specifically the culture that we're in. Right, right. So, I mean, there's a lot of different facets that can come from that. And I know in the book you did talk about a lot of core themes within it. So is there a particular area that you were really resonating with when you first started writing? Uh, I think that that what usually triggers me is something that I see it could be something very you know, a casual observation or just a a film that I'm watching or a piece of music, meaning almost, you know, pop cultural stimuli that sort of uh, 
get into my brain and I start thinking about it. Well, what, what is this relating to? And I sort of make my own little detective work. I enjoy that a lot. Probably has to do with my background as a journalist. You know, I like to, to scratch the surface and see what's beneath it and usually find very interesting things. And, and uh, for instance, in Source Magic, I had for years actually wanted to write something about The Prisoner, the original Prisoner TV series from the 60s, uh, the British one which I saw as a youngster, but didn't fully, you know, take in fully because it's so packed with, with information. And then later on revisited and revisited. And it just dawned on me, this, this is a brilliant piece of art that contains not only the time that it was created in, but also it's very current now. It's filled with this kind of, you know, individualistic streak, filled with paranoia, harsh observations about the control system, Many things that are completely valid today. And, and uh, when I started scratching that surface, I realized that it is what I call an occultural gem in that sense. The occulture, of course, being when something moves from the occult and into culture, possibly even into mainstream culture. Uh, that seems to be going on a lot these days. And, and we can talk you know, for hours about why that is. But that's one example of how something I've enjoyed watching and I feel attached to, then it came up in my mind, I have to write something about this, and I want the title to be The Prisoner Will Set You Free. You know, so there was this sort of creative stimulus that that became an obsession of sorts, and then I wrote the piece, and now I'm free of it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting, because The Prisoner also foreshadowed, along with a lot of books around the same time. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, the Big Brother, the Surveillance State, uh, oh, yeah. even even some of the Fahrenheit 451 ideas of maybe information is free, but no one bothers to read it. Exactly. Uh, like yeah. it kind of like all the kind of themes that were kind of in classic critical science fiction of the 50s. Is, Prisoner was a good good show that kind of took ideas from all that and kind of. It's kind of a weird surrealism that we actually kind of live in that reality right now. <laughs> totally, totally. What was so interesting about the thing, because you're completely right, you know, you had Orwell and before that you had Huxley's Brave New World. And, you know, there's always been this kind of thing within mainstream culture, not necessarily occult in that sense. These books were actually selling quite, quite well. Obviously, they touched upon something in society and culture at the time that people wanted to hear. But the interesting thing about The Prisoner was that... Uh, sometimes everything needs to coalesce in order to bloom into something fantastic. Because we know there are a lot of great, great, great hidden masterpieces that no one will ever read because, you know, they're not really where they should be at that time. But for The Prisoner, you know, being a product of the mid-60s, and it's so extravagant in its production, you know, it's so psychedelic. I think it had to do with the fact that everybody was on acid at the time. Everyone was turned on and they said, oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's make it and let, let's uh, make it really, you know, fun and weird. And Patrick McGowan, who was certainly no acid head or, or you know, even psychedelic, he was quite a stiff upper lip conservative Brit, yet he had this libertarian streak, of course. For him, it must have been like, whoa, how did this happen? Because... You know? <laughs> everything was right and and it had a great impact you know they had a very controversial ending and people you know called into the bbc or whichever network it was outraged about the ending you know people cared about that in those days uh, things had more of an impact and that i think was interesting because the kids or the teenagers at the time 
meaning those who were sort of born in the early 50s were really impacted by this this series you know not only about the the psychedelic things going on but in in general because it carried so much philosophy and i would like to you know just say that one of the key things that i wrote about as a possible cornerstone of his creation along the lines of huxley and orwell was john Fowles' the magus which was a novel that came out in the mid 60s about the same kind of paranoiac a thing where you don't know what's real the reality is being hidden away from you and you live in some kind of almost mad state of mind where you start doubting yourself uh, because the outer circumstances dictate that you're the problem. It's not the, the control system that's the problem, but it's you. But of course, in the end, everything works out and, and uh, the protagonist realizes that someone is messing with his mind. And it's, uh, yeah. Which is interesting because you're overlaying as a cult and obviously there's a lot of Gnostic ideas mm-hmm. there, and I would consider later pseudo derivatives of the prisoner like the matrix yeah and, yeah and and a lot of science fiction that really deals with gnostic even the lego movie for instance oh yeah um, uh, which is a cartoon but it really does hit on a lot of gnostic ideas that no you as the individual or this i think in a practical magical sense every magician goes through this they don't understand what's going on and they think they are the problem yeah uh, they are the problem. They are always the problem because the culture says that isn't to belittle people who actually have schizophrenia. Some people do, but there's a lot of people who do magic where if they had proper training, it's not really schizophrenia per se. It's something else. And they, the system tells them you are the problem. You know, if you dress a little differently, you are the problem. In the United States right now, it's, I mean, we're we're in Canada, obviously, so we're a little insulated from this. The United States right now is getting to the point, if you are homosexual, you are the problem. Maybe if you're a woman, you are the problem in certain states. It's yeah. always the system saying you are the problem. And, and really, I think what you're tying this in and how this relates to the cult is that from individual and practical magic, you're not the problem. You're in an oppressive system. And just mm-hmm. like the Gnostics of so many thousands of years ago, you have to realize that it's a lie to get anywhere, to get anywhere in the magic. That's what the, that's what the movies are saying too, but it's commercialized and the message is sometimes hidden, although it's probably more brutal in The Prisoner than it is in later cultural commodities that touch on a similar principle. Prisoner was pretty brutal in an ending, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it's interesting, you know, because I, I totally agree with you. And the thing is that we can actually call this what's going on in, in the occult church, so to speak, is definitely a Gnostic strain. You know, it's something that simply cannot be hammered down. It's just sort of too inherent in our systems that the individual wants to be free, you know, whatever cost. And, and there's always this uh, problem where you have draconian collectivisms that are usually built up and encouraged by troubled, unbalanced individuals that take on a collective form that leads to psychosis. But it can never keep that individual nail down. You know, they try to hammer it down, but it always pops up in another part of the board. Well, in a weird way, you mean, like we can look at parts of the psychological system, not all. Some people have legitimate problems. So haters gonna hate, that's fine. But I'm saying people do have real therapeutic needs, but oh mm-hmm. sometimes those therapeutic needs are actually political 
what is sort of determined to be a problem is part of the control system we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I think, and we always talk about practical magic and how this happens is in really realistically, you can't do magic and not be antinomial. You yep. have to, I mean, every single system of magic that I think we could talk about anthropology somehow has some antinomial qualities. It's like you are bucking the whole general vibe of everyone in your family, possibly your friends, definitely like your, your church group. There's always these conversion stories myself included, where you have to buck the system. I mean, you've written about Anton LaVey bucking the system, right? There's this antinomial quality to magic when we start studying anthropology mm -hmm. and we see that every magician, whether they're practical or shaman in the modern age, rebels against the system. It's like, it's like we're all just, if we want to get all Luciferian about it, we're all have like a, have to become a little bit of a shining star to even even get anywhere with this absolutely uh, and the, putting it into a cultural pretense is is really useful because it's kind of saying none of these heroes get off scot-free for that insight mm -hmm. in fiction and probably those of us who do magic could relate our own stories of how we don't get off scot-free for those realizations and neither does the yeah. neither does the fictional characters we're talking about the prisoner certainly he did not get scot off scot-free at all no um, no yeah, no, but it's in interesting too that, that I think that this kind of dichotomy between the individuals trying to fight something, whether with magic or, or politics or, or just, uh, you know, being an outsider in some way, I think that it hasn't always been like that. I think it's a result of, again, two rigid collectivisms, and they could be simply structural, they could be religious, they could be political, or simply the fact that a society or a culture has become too you know, big, too voluminous to allow for these individual voices to, to sing out praise to the individual in a way. Because I do think when you had a smaller tribe, a smaller group, smaller society, you had an integrated magic with the shaman or, you know, people doing things in a group setting and creating the kind of magic that you need to transcend, you know. But if this is discouraged within the collective that you're born into, the, the country or culture you're born into, then of course you will find yourself sooner or later, probably sooner, in a position, as you say, of opposition, where in fact all you want to do is to become an individual, to individuate on your own terms. And, and why should that be anybody else, else's business? That's the eternal question. Why mess with whatever I want or you want? You know. So I well, think that that's why the proxy yeah. thing you comes in with religion and, and priesthoods and people doing this for you, but you never asked for it in the first place. I think that's an interesting point about the priesthood. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously people know that I got initiated and I, I do some priest work, but my fundamental mentality is much more left-hand path for a lot of reasons that deal with what we're talking about today. Um, but fundamentally we, we have, some opposing major ideas in the world. We have like systems like the Chinese system, which is overly oppressive and everyone sort of seems to do magic under the surface in back alleys. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Western system, which is hyper individualistic and the people doing magic are having to actually rebel against the hyper individualism, which is also constraining. 
which people don't understand how constraining that actually is to a magical perspective. It's a very unique form of hyper-individualism that's tied to secular consumerism, uh, at least in the West. And we can speak about that, at least in North America, let's put it that right. way. I can't speak if Sweden might be a little better. But that's also what you're, you're rebelling against isn't individualism, but this pretense of individualism. You're able to be an individual in these lanes. <laughs> like, so it's like sort of a, it's a weirdly, I don't know, weirdly conceptual panopticon, like that we're individuals, except everyone's watching. Like, yeah. you, like we're individuals and you could do whatever you want as long as you spend the money to do that. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the more money you have, the more degrees of freedom you have. But we know what your desires are because we, we told you them, but you're free to do them. You're totally free. Mm. This gets into what is the path of the magician in a society like that? It's getting increasingly complex and weird. Like, like it doesn't look like your normal 60s rebellion anymore. No, you know? I, I, th I think what was happening is that uh, there used to be integrated structures for teaching some form of magic. I'm thinking about Freemasonic structures and these kind of fraternities in a way where you could discuss philosophical topics without being deemed a heretic in a you know, basically Christian society. But those structures, like the overarching structures of society and culture, are being questioned daily. So what, where does that leave the individual? Well, I think what you mentioned, that's one of the reasons why I think the um, diasporic religions, magical systems, you know, from West Africa going over the you know, Caribbean and into Brazil and then into the Western systems. I think that's uh, significant because it's a kind of indicative of a hunger. People need some kind of system to individuate. That's just natural. And then they look for it intuitively instead of looking at, you know, what did my father do? What do my, you know, work buddies do? They might not be, I might not be joining a lodge as they do. I will go into Santeria instead. You know, this is more of an intuitive motion. And I think that's, of course, very, very healthy. And it doesn't seem to be as commercialized and commodified as the other things are. You know, where you have. Uh, to I might have, said, might have agreed with you 15 years ago, and I'm not sure I do anymore. <laughs> like, right. You know, <laughs> but, but let's, let's uh, back up the tape 15 years because that's still a tiny, tiny slice of time in the big perspective. And I think that kids today, they're of course going into weird, you know, sigilizing TikTok magics. And, and there's a lot of technological applications going on. Uh, but still, that's ritual usage. But still, yeah. the key thing is to individuate. And, and sometimes you need a bit of guidance on that path. You can move intuitively, but that also means that you can, you know, get burnt or you can become happy or you can find your right path right away. You can never tell. You just have to, to move on the path. But I do think that what's being offered today is, is a wider palette. It's a more colorful palette of, of things that you can choose from, mainly having to do, of course, with stuff you can find on the internet, but also in terms of occult publishing. The fact that there are so many great publishers making beautiful books, academic, you know, standard in a way, but still initiated works that can inspire you to, to see if that system is something for you. So it is a very individualistic, I don't know, uh, possibility going on, at least in our, you know, the culture that we share, whereas in other parts of the world, probably not. But that, as you say, can also be 
a hampering can be like you don't see the forest because you're just staring at the trees that are in your face in a way so i don't know i think we're living in a very interesting times and i think it's a good time for magic we need magic in order to survive it's an inherent part of our survival instinct and that's why we had this massive flooding of a culture things ideas philosophies systems moving into the mainstream mainly via pop culture and i think it's uh, it's never been like this before i don't think yeah there's much more interest now but one of the things is to come back to that like hyper individualism and hyper information right like because not totally separate so we have i mean there is no secrets on the internet if people think there are you can find every santeria ritual every voodoo ritual mm-hmm. every initial initiation aspect you can find any Taoist initiation you want any any particular tux that you want to find online exist any secret all exists there, there's nothing that's secret and people if you want to challenge me on this ask me any tradition within 30 minutes if it's on the dark webs or on the regular webs we would be able to find what the initiatory rites look like and in some shape or form and so you have all the new people presented with a secondary challenge by the system in a way, if we're going to talk in, in Gnostic terms of here's a plethora of information and that costs you decision. It costs you time and effort to make a decision because there's so much and they all seem equally valid. In which case the, for many individuals, the best case for them to do is nothing because it's information paralysis where, again, if we're talking about a system of control, this is another mechanism of system of control of overwhelming the information to, yeah. to present you with an inability to make any sort of choices at all. Well, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I think mean, also, go ahead, Carl. Yeah. I think it also, it's uh, something that I recognize from, my youth and when I started to become interested in these things, of course, there was no internet then. So you were instead involved in much slower networks and you had time to savor and integrate information in a different way because that, that speed and the availability is more fragmenting than it is really inspiring. And I think, you know, my experience, and I think many people would agree, is that the real sort of, the real initiations, not necessarily the the structural ones, come from personal interaction, you know, where you're so inspired by what's going on in the moment or by a person that you take that little quantum leap onto the next level of understanding. I'm not saying that it's impossible to reach that via internet connections and networking. But I do believe that things having to do with individuation and that kind of motion forwards on your own path, sort of, I think you need real human interactions for that. And of course, that's very true for like yogic adventures or tantric practice and and sort of uh, Western sex magic in a way. But also in just in terms of, of the kind of magical individuation, uh, you can't really uh, get the full spectrum via book learning or integration of information. You need some kind of interhuman reflection in which you also send out so you don't only receive, but that there is that kind of third minding going on. I think that's crucial. I mean, in practice, like one of the strongest ways to learn magic is just to be able to be around anyone who knows magic. As in like, there's they don't have to teach you a single thing verbally, but by just being part of the ritual, there's 
there is a third wave of transfer where yeah. you have a set of body reactions, a set of information exchange that you otherwise would not ever get from a book. You know, a book says something like meditate for five minutes and then do this. Well, what does that even mean? Mm. Like, like but when you experience what that means, or you're part of a ritual uh, where you have people who have actually done this a few times, or they know what they sort of know what they're doing. That consciousness changes. I think that's what we're talking about. The consciousness changes aren't easily modeled in the, in the current forms of information we have. Right, exactly. Um, and that's one of the one of the essays I wrote for for the Source Magic book is about magical realism. And usually, the first association is to you know this sort of fanciful literary category or genre, which is sort of a little bit spaced out, a little bit experimental. And that's beautiful. You know, Borges could be one example. But what I'm getting to in that particular piece is exactly that, that just a small little alteration in the straight narrative can open you up in that same way as you can with someone who knows magic and, and can inspire you in that way. You just need to go outside the proverbial box. Uh, and that's why literature and movies and culture in general can actually take you to these levels of understanding and insight, of revelation even. Especially, I think, now in these days, I don't know if, if kids even read books anymore. <laughs> but, I mean, there might be other platforms that have this. But the way I see it... Let's see. Like, kids are reading manga. And I can manga, guarantee yeah. what you're describing yeah. is going on in manga. Oh, they I are modeling it. magical states. The Japanese manga are modeling Japanese states, and they're model they're modeling they're modeling magical systems, mm -hmm. sometimes okay. Western systems, mm -hmm. uh, and not just their own Shinto systems and other Eastern systems. They are clearly modeling a fictionalized version of the subjective experience of actual occult rituals. Some of those authors are it's. If I would sit down and talk with them, work. it's obvious to me that they have done those rituals and had a subjective experience mm -hmm. because the way they put together some of these things, even with the cultural system, is maybe I wouldn't have described it exactly the same in a sort of subjective art piece, but I certainly understand why they did, uh, which is different than the when you're looking at art that seems to model the information but they clearly don't mm. understand the subjective impact of some of the some of the summonings yeah absolutely and i think that that's wonderful and i think a lot of that if we stick with the sort of graphic novel or comic book thing like you know what what alan moore did and it's like this conscious integration yeah. of magical mm -hmm. ideas but even that kind of become inert in a while it can become just you know run of the mill they usually use using magical themes and that kind of thing but but what i'm what i'm referring to in that magical realism text is that no matter what kind of output you have anything that sort of jolts the experience a little bit is good and that can happen in in even the most like conservative narrative or unexpected it doesn't have to do with magical themes or occult themes or things that you usually associate with this path of let's call it gnostic individuation then but it can come from unexpected sources and i think that's true also of even people who can become shocked into uh, realization by trauma for instance experiencing something horrible or watching a traffic accident or whatever can take you to that level of of 
whoa, memento mori, you know, I could die any minute. Let's take, make the most of, of the life that I have. You know, those kinds of insights sound banal when you talk about them, but they can be absolutely life-changing for the person who experiences them. And it has nothing to do with, you know, religious structures or, or, or cult structures. It's just this sort of real existential stuff. And in my experience, that's why I wrote this piece, a lot of that came from reading, you know, people like Borges, for instance. You get into his weird little short stories, and then you realize that you don't realize, you know, what the hell was happening here? And why did this affect me in such a way that I felt that I feel elevated? You know, that's interesting. Culture and art in general has that ability to affect you in non-rational ways. And I think that for me has been a key area of, of studying that's not necessarily tied to any kind of specific occultism, but has to do, I think, with the human mind and how it works. I don't know that we could separate the human mind from occultism. Myself, I think I've been a proponent of the first magic book you should take up is a book of psychology and start from there. But it's kind of interesting, though, because you're also picking authors who are relatively unknown for mm. this. Right, we could pick more relatively known authors, and it gets a little more challenging because of the aspects of commercialism and sort of formulaic storytelling. Which, again, like to go to the theme of today, that gets back to this whole. It gets back to the prisoner. It gets back to the, the 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 formula of controls. Is these formulaic storytellings versus some of the smaller, not smaller. I don't. I don't want to say smaller. Lesser known authors who may not be may not need to do this for a paycheck or, or may not desire to do it for a paycheck yeah i mean going on this theme of this premise of individuation i mean in a few chapters like lux per Knox, obviously you were talking about a few things from the memento mori forever chapter yeah and even the imaginary is real like all of these yeah. themes you're talking about outside experiences outside your normal like everyday experiences cause the crack and i found that like the progression there even from the lux where you're saying well we're going to talk about mythologies and connections to fenris the wolf and loki and how that works into getting to your primal atavistic aspects that's one route possibly or the death aspects of yeah. taking you out right this is where I would say, how does that work in perception to things like, you know, you were talking about things like the Gnostic Shamanic direct knowledge versus symbolic knowledge of the proxy symbolic, so HDA systems, things like that. So how would you kind of bring all those things together in reference to our conversation now? Well, I think that that, first of all, if you're an individual and you feel that you're, you know, you have to change something, and that's the classical teenage thing, you have to, you need to rebel or go on your own path, that could take many different forms. It could mean like choosing a different study path in general, a different career path. It could also mean breaking off of a career path later on in life just because you feel that that's better. That's, of course, very healthy. But in terms of, of these things where I don't necessarily see that there's a difference between the you know symbolic and real in that kind of illumination perspective and that's why myths real myths are so important it's important to surround yourself with mythic input because that gives you insight into what's possible and if we talk about religious systems for instance you could say you could actually argue that polytheistic 
pantheons are psychologically more healthy healthier than the monotheistic ones because you have oh, there yeah. the palette or the the aspects of the human mind the human nature the human psychology in these different gods that one culture has created at one point in time and when you're immersed immersed in that then you can see oh i'm more of a loki person than i'm an odin person or i might be more of a frey person you know if you're in that culture or it could be you know shiva or or any kind of you know polytheistic pantheon i think that if you're exposed to that rather than you know perhaps the more diluted forms in popular culture, like with all these superheroes, for instance, I'm not saying they don't have mythic potential. I think they do. But the closer you get to the source, the more likely it is that you will find this resonance. We, Whoa, I'm, I feel such an affinity with this mythic you know, symbol in a way. And that's the path that will lead you to a real revelation. So in a way, symbols lead the way to you embodying that kind of reality or, or experiencing that kind of illumination that will fill your life with meaning. And that's basically what it, what it's all about. You know, you can have you can be immersed in systems that have rituals, that have meditations, that have ceremonies, that where you have a funny hat, all these things, but in actual fact what you're really after is something that fills your life with meaning. And again, all these things can fill your life with meaning. But again, it could also be delusion or an illusion, whereas in actual fact, you might need to go into the forest and take a stroll and you'll find that kind of intense happiness rather than going into a lodge meeting with people who you don't really feel an affinity with. But it's something that you've been taught here in lies the magic, but it might just be an empty tradition. I mean, one of the interesting points that you make is that the superheroes well, I mean, again, that comes down to like the commercialization. Mm -hmm. Superheroes are more commercialized than some of the source materials. The, the context is different. How well the Greek gods being having a resurgence right yeah. now. They used to be more like superheroes, I think, fairy tales, and now they sort of have been creeping into the culture a lot more as more serious magical system again. Uh, but I think that's the interesting point is the context of a superhero is so limited, it can't escape its fictional bounds in a way. Like the meta message is, well, here's this fictional superhero. They don't exist. Whereas gods are a little bit more complicated because they may or may not have physical bodies at any given times. Maybe they do at times have physical representations, but a lot of times they're not considered of physical materia where a superhero is always physical there, suffers from the problems of physicality. And clearly we don't have any superheroes. Um, so it, it kind of limits the whole narrative of the superhero as, as God, God stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I think, think it's, a, it's a, it's a result of, of too much exploitation, too much dilution yeah. in a way. It wasn't that long ago. There was actually, I, I think, a stronger mythical connection. Like, for instance, with Superman, you know, the first association in anyone's mind when Superman came up was, of course, Nietzsche, you know, talk about the overman or the Superman. And Batman, of course, had, you know, deep philosophical implications in, you know, what is justice and how do I relate to my personal trauma? I compensate by becoming, you know, kind of a Lex Talionis person. It, it was right. packed with that you know, more fodder. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, you know, it's, uh, what's it called? Ant-Man versus 
something else you know it's almost like a joke it's, it's become like a cartoonish adaption of of something that at one point could fulfill a function it's like for instance the first uh, fast and furious movie could be seen as well that's a you know it's a the hero's quest right but is it's yeah, is it still yeah. valid in in fast and furious number 10 <laughs> you know it's like oh, we're at 10 oh yeah, it's coming out yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I'm saying is that you know the the farther you drift from the source, and I talk about the source also in the in source magic, is like the farther away you drift from that, the more confused you will be. It's better to attach yourself to the source. And of course, what is the source? Well, I argue that the source is that we all, as individuals and as collectives, have an inherent need, integrated in our survival instinct, to transcend the rational and transcend whatever system that we have created together. I believe that religious systems, magical systems, whether individual or collectivist, they are created by us in a specific symbology and specific language in order to transcend it. We have that need to, you know, go beyond. And if most people in our culture sort of let's call it the western culture they you know they get stoned on the weekends or they get drunk in the weekends that's again a diluted example of the real thing which is to perhaps you know be high or be merrily inebriated and go dancing and find revelry and sex and stuff that's a real kind of transcendental experience but most people use it to dull themselves or to drink themselves into oblivion so it's sort of lost its function there but it's still an example of the need we have as individuals and as cultures to leave that rational brain i think you can successfully make an argument that which is implied by what you're saying that many occult practices could have a transcendental impact yes but in these cultural groupings that where people are at they don't yeah exactly. i think i think this has been one of the complaints that you'll hear from me and zach mm-hmm. about certain public rituals is that there's no desire for transcendence or that's put it in that language i wouldn't have quite that way but i can see well, where that's what it is it's like right. are you touching the gods or are you not if yeah. you're not why are you doing this Right, like it's well, it's for group belonging, it's for group effect. Yeah, but that's not yeah. that limits the purpose of what mm-hmm. you're talking about this mm-hmm. potentially transcendent experience. Like, are you touching the spiritual or not? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're not, if there's no potential of that at all, you've again just dulled the senses. You, yeah, you've left. You, it's the same as if you, you, you have the oxyt- you have the oxytocin of interpersonal connection, the, mm-hmm. the, the dopamine as opposed to alcohol, rush of social mm-hmm. contact, but you're not necessarily, it, it, not necessarily that that social construct is being used in a way that pushes the individual beyond the limits of the social construct or the mm-hmm. social experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, that that the reason why we have such a major influx of, you know, occult themes or fantastic themes or, or, things that have been, you know, occulted, they have been in the hidden, they have been underneath the surface. The reason why it's all sprouting and budding now is that we're in such dire straits, you know, on a global level that we need to wake up in a way to learn how to think in a different way. Not necessarily an older way. You could see that we have to think in a new way with faster response, with 
trusting we find inside rather than what's being found outside or from others. And I think we will see if that happens, I'm not so sure it will, but if that happens, that we will see that there's more uh, on communal levels when people look inside and only ask themselves and then share that information. I'm sure that more people than expected will say, that's exactly what I found inside. That's exactly how I feel. Okay, so let's do something about this. But as long as there are, you know, vested interests in that not happening, and I'm not, you know, being critical against any kind of political system or any kind of, you know, business system. It's just, this is beyond that. And I think the best way to go about coming up with a solution is to listen to yourself and also look at greater nature and the fact that you are part of greater nature. You're not abstracted from it. You're not separated from it. That's a cultural impregnation that's been very, very damaging to, to, to both nature as such and to us as individuals. It's just very simple. I think that the, the key or the essence of Gnostic illumination or you know, magical realizations, magical power, whatever, is this connection that we have with nature as such. And that includes all other people. You know, we're just one organism. And that can be a hard thing to fathom when discrimination is something that is so central actually to most political systems. It's based on pointing the finger at the other. And that's part the, of the control mechanism. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. because if you can get people fighting amongst themselves, they're much easier to control. Oh, of course, uh, that's just course. that's just a simple fact. Yeah. yeah. So that's the thing. And that's also why why these systems, whether they're religious or political, just call them control. That's why they say that what you're experiencing on the inside is not real. What you're experiencing on the inside is not valid. It has no value. Hasn't been processed empirically. Hasn't hasn't been proved by the peers. You know, and it's bullshit. Because if more people listened to themselves and acted upon their own sensory input and intellectual processing of the sensory input, the world would be much much better place. So I would love to totally agree, but I'm going to take the dev devil's advocacy on this. Sure. <laughs> Because actually, I do agree with that sentiment that if people did that, on the whole, we would not be better. Yeah. However, in the States, what we saw with the rise of certain political figures um, and certain organizations is people continuously saying they're doing exactly that and coming to conclusions where they discount every empirical evidence and they get into these weird circles of... of well, you get into the chambers. Yeah. Echo chambers of <laughs> yeah, things yeah. that aren't, that seem logical, like, and they seem like they're intuitively derived, but they're easy. They're, yeah. they're easy answers, like, or easy answers to, to hard problems, as it were. Mm -hmm. Like, not just in, they seem like they're intuitive, but they're sort of rehashing Absolutely. Uh, stuff. Yeah. No, but it becomes I mean, a problem. It becomes a, a, an input for the sheeple in a way who have never been taught to think for themselves. And of course, here comes right. someone who stands up against, you know, hegemony of, of the elite or whatever you want to call them and, and gives you a different kind of input where you don't have to clench your fist in your pocket. You can, you know, clench it and show it together with other disgruntled people. But that's really, if they were encouraged to look inside themselves instead of being, you know, force-fed with just a different kind of input, then maybe it would be a different thing. But unfortunately, it's such a common systemic habit 
of listening to the authority. And I'm certainly no anarchist. I do believe in order, you know, but, but in that order should be the maximum freedom of movement in thought and in, in the body to do what you want to do without hurting anyone else. And also being encouraged to trust what you think, that it's not an illusion, that it's not I'm not trying to create a dichotomy against empiricism, by the way, you know, uh, to encourage a scientific mind frame and to encourage, you know, specifically now concerning the, the global crisis about uh, what's going on. Trust the scientists. You know, they usually don't have ulterior motives, actually. I don't think NASA well, I, has ulterior motives. <laughs> I, think or, or... I think people fundamentally misunderstand science, too, yeah. and yeah. empirical evidence. Scientists are overly careful, too, because they're not able to really enter the political discourse in a way to defend themselves, because the core of science will not allow that. It's not that they couldn't speak out. It's that the core of science doesn't completely reject truth, but it kind of does. Mm. Like, But people don't understand the core scientific method of you have a lot of evidence, so that suggests this theory is probably okay. Until somebody goes through and says it's not, and that's totally okay. And then scientists kind of fight it out for a while. And then they say, well, this is the new consensus. And that's how actual science works. It's no yeah. single religion has truth. Scientism mm -hmm. has truth. But science has theories that are very well supported right now. Mm -hmm. Like, and where a lot of evidence exists and people don't understand that like even when you're getting into the discourse of science and imperialisms they don't understand that scientists are probably living with the sort of most uncertainty or they are looking at the there's a lot of evidence for this but they don't take things upon or they shouldn't take things upon as faith uh, and that's a useful magical skill like where it gets to like kind of goes back to where this went wrong with the intuition of so many people in the pandemic is, okay, you, you have to critically think and you have to use your intuition, but you also have to have evidence, right? Like evidence is your friend actually in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, opinion is easy to change. I think that was from dogma, you know, <laughs> yes. to, yeah. to absolutely. Opinion. But it's also interesting. I think I write about that in, in, uh, in the source magic book also is that, the very foundation of empiricism is actually wild speculation. It is taking yeah. irrational input that you get in totally, you know, intuitive states or hypnagogic states or hypnopompic states, meditative states. And then, you know, you have this idea and you think, what if, you know, what if I take this crazy idea and churn it through the empirical churning and then it comes out as, as a pristine and actual scientific fact? That's how everything begins. And, and that I can be critical at times about, you know, at least how some scientists appear to present themselves and science as such and empiricism as such, as it's just something that exists above and there's no mention of the I, very, I think, very speculative. I think your issue is with the religion of scientism. It yeah, is maybe, yeah. Like it isn't empiricism that or the scientific method that's the issue. It's this scientism which says yes. we have the answers. And this is the way it is. Yeah. Uh, and this is a religion because it's a when you sort of say this is the faith, this is the tenets of the faith. And there is, in some cases, even the tenets of the faith, questionable evidence to say the tenets of the faith is wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So it 
true empiricism would have to throw away the idea that they had all the answers. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, that's, I mean, that's a term that, I mean, I've heard over and over again to describe this as scientism, the religion of science, yeah, which is opposed to the thing. practice of science. Yeah. yeah. So I think you have a problem with scientists who practice the religion of yeah. science. Yes. So we're almost we're almost almost to the hour already, right? Just like that. Like, it's magic. Well, good conversation is magic in a way. It right? is. So do you have any things coming up or any classes or presentations or, or big big events that you'd like to kind of talk about? Well, it's is my wife and I, we have a monthly thing going on at Morbid Anatomy Museum online. They have a lot of events and, and classes and lectures and stuff. And we have a monthly thing called Under the Umbrella of Psychoanalysis, Art and the Occult. We've had conferences and stuff like that. And, and uh, each month we invite guests to lecture. And it's also always a Q&A thing. And it's usually very, very interesting because these three topics, Psychoanalysis, Art and the Occult, basically, <laughs> you know, runs the whole gamut. It's just so much you can fit in there. So I would recommend that people check out Morbid Anatomy and our psych art cult events that's a monthly thing and also there's there's a lot of things going on all the time so i think the best thing is perhaps people are interested to sign up for my newsletter at carlabrahamson.com carlabrahamson.com carl with a c abrahamson with two s's.com and there's a newsletter there and i inform people about everything that's going on through those awesome all right zach what do we have coming up besides well, what I mentioned? Well, what you mentioned. What's, if you're in Toronto, what do you got for you the got? sponsors? Well, how sponsors, do people become a sponsor? Well, sponsors can go to... To help us keep the light on. To keep the lights on, yes, absolutely. So if you want to become a sponsor or help us keep things going, anything helps, it's queencitycurio.ca backslash pages backslash become a member. We have various member sponsorships. And... For different level tiers, you could start at as low as $10. However, most people will go for a 10 sponsorship that gives you access to hundreds of lessons and rituals that we have online from the last few years. You get access to all the weekly different events we have, be it workshops or rituals. You get access to our fine library with over 800 books. And it keeps adding every week because we keep bringing in more and more things. And uh, you get first word of what's coming out. So that's for our members. The next coming events, aside from what Andrea mentioned, after the Haniel ritual, we have love and like spells with figurine candles. That's going to be on the 30th. And then we have a medicine Buddha ritual once we get into the next month for physical healing. So there's a lot more coming up. Plus, we have that three-year commitment we have made with the Goetia and the Semaphora. For, for Rish? Rish. Oh, he's got it close enough. So three years of that, where we're doing summonings, Whoa. rituals, and we're working with Stephanie Colony on that one. Every two weeks, we're going to do a summoning, an actual summon. Hardcore. So there you go. And you could be part of it. So you just got to, and they'll be online too. And we have methods for you to be able to connect and not just in view the video, but actually connect and actually transcend or really connect. We've kind of worked out some methods to make the video actually better as in mm -hmm. actually not just performative. So if you're interested, 
come on by. We've also got public shrines. We've got two running shrines right now, one in a shrine in for anyone could go to, to the ancestors, and one that we have uh, a a Buddhist shrine, but somebody also put a Gnostic Jesus. We up got Gnostic Jesus kind of go right theme, but it could be a Buddha, depending on how you interpret it. Right, but they're publicly shrines with publicly blessed talismans that people actually put there, and that 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 do work with the various things. And you know, if you kind of just come and even handle some of those, and just kind of let yourself feel what you feel goes with the theme today you might be able to actually have one of those experiences that pierce through uh pierce through the mundane world just a little bit all that's free just come by even if the door's locked downstairs we're up on the fourth floor we'll open the door we'll go back to what we're doing you know you don't have to buy anything we'd like you to buy something but you don't have to don't have to all right well thank thank you you, carl for coming on the show i'd love to have you you come back yeah Uh, i'd love to We'd and love to have you come book. back in the future. Yeah, yes, yep, there's the book. Source Magic, the Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. That's in our library currently. So if you're a sponsor or you just want to pop into our public library and read it, you have access now. Right, Perfect. yeah, that's right. You don't have to be a sponsor to take take a look at it. If you want to check it out, you have to be a sponsor. But yeah. if you want to just come and sit in our couch and our chairs, comfortable couch, you could sit there and read it. You don't have to again. Have to. You don't have to be a sponsor. So you could just be in the public. There you go. All right. So everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week with talking about the evil eye. Deeper down the rabbit hole is sponsored by the Queen City Curio and Apothecary in Toronto, Ontario, proudly in East Chinatown. Our store is at 607 Gerard Street East, Unit 401. Just take the elevator up to the fourth floor and we're right there. We carry the finest spiritual goods for all spiritual paths. Whatever you are into, we can help. Check out our full public library of occult materials with over a thousand books. Accessible anytime the store is open. Check us out online at queencitycurio.ca Be sure to leave a wish at our wish shrine right outside our door. You never know, it may just come to pass.